So this retreat is uh, about the reclamation, in part, about the reclamation of the sacred, which is the title that we gave to it. Um, The process of healing and uh, reclamation through insight meditation. And that's not really a word that um, is used that much in the language of the Buddha Dharma, the word sacred. Um, But it is a very beautiful word and something that has a very profound meaning and speaks to the loss uh, of our deep connection to the web of life. Um, And in that, the sense of the loss of the sacred, the... Um, where there's a sort of abstraction into a a, a mundaneness that um, becomes sometimes somewhat soulless. You forget that we have this incredible experience and opportunity of being alive in this mysterious cosmos on this beautiful planet. And the loss of being in touch with that there's a moment-to-moment reality uh, and instead sort of being caught in this, these cycles of stress and striving and competition and, and desacralization um, of ourselves, of our relationships, of our body, of the earth itself is quite a painful place to be. So the um, word sacrare in Latin means to devote, a sense of having a, a feeling of devotion. And that is actually very much part of the transmission of the Buddha Dharma. Perhaps it doesn't come through very much in the way that the Dharma becomes secularized and commodified almost and becomes almost um, equated with a methodology and a technique and the meditative processes get um, abstracted from the current of what actually has carried the Dharma over two and a half thousand years uh, through many different cultures and through hundreds of generations so really it's not a technique that gets carried it's it's an act of devotion and faith and deep dedication, and that in and of itself is something very sacred, and to be in touch with what it's taken to pass the Dharma on through the generations so we can sit here in this amazing space and contemplate it and benefit from it. So that in and of itself is something sacred, to honor those that have gone before us and have committed their lives to the preservation of the Dharma. So it also has the sense of to regard with reverence and to secure against violation. That there is that in life which is important to to hold with reverence, all of life actually. You know, from the tiniest bug to all the animals, to all the creatures, to the trees, to these bodies that we inhabit. Uh, to the mountains and the rivers, uh, to the fact that we can be in relationship 
to the language that we use. And again, there's a, a loss of that. And, and then to secure against violation, the sense of protecting. So in that word sacred is the, the feeling to protect against that which violates the sense of the sacred. In the old English word sacred, it means to consecrate, that, that there's the bringing of what we touch and what we do, we consecrate, we bring the sacred into embodiment, into action. So when just contemplating that theme, it helps us to be interested in how we can bring that back into our lives. There's um, a book called Cosmos and Psyche written by Richard Tarnas where he talks about that there was a time, a long, long time ago um, when there wasn't such a loss of the sacred, when there was a sense of, the, of, a, of, the, of being human as being part of a, the order of things, where, there, where the primal man or person, woman, experiences themselves or perceive them perceive the natural world as permeated this is his words permeated with meaning it's not just dead matter it's, everything's permeated with meaning there are spirits in the forest presences felt in the wind oceans rivers mountains the primal world world is ensouled pregnant with signs and symbol, symbols and the human is a, a microcosm within the macrocosm of the world. This feeling of being in an ensouled world. And again, that's not a very Buddhist idea, but this web of belonging, this web of life, that it's actually is this sense of a soul, is another way perhaps of talking about the jitta, the deep heart, where everything is felt, everything is connected. We're not just an isolated entity sort of, somehow wafting around in the wind, trying to make sense of everything. There's a, a deep feeling of connection and belonging, knowing our place within the cosmos. And that, uh, that cosmos is a, an alive speaking world, a speaking universe, and that we're in communion with. And so therefore religious experience isn't a, a dogma or a belief or a rite or a ritual but it's a deep participation and a deep communication within life itself. And so this, um, you know, and then, and then as a person, as a human, we experience that participation emotionally, spiritually, mystically, that deep relationship um, with the natural world, with the cosmos, with the stars, with the, the phases of the moon, with the phases of the season, with the flow of the natural unfolding of things. And that our deep participation is not mediated so much through the objective mind that objectifies everything and thinks about things as out there, but is mediated through this deep relationship, experiences deep relationship, mediated through through intuitive awareness, through altered states, through meditative processes, through shamanic ways of being in relationship, through vision, through dreams, 
So get a, a fullness of the sense of our deep belonging in, in, the, in the unfolding and the mystery um, of, this, of this world, of nature, of this cosmos and the relationships that we're in. This is all really part of the sense of being rooted within a sense of sacredness. And much of that, of course, we've been pulled out of over millennia. And this is a a long story how that's come about and how we have experienced ourselves um, as losing that sense of deep connection, being pulled out from this deep sense of belonging. And in some ways, that's a very deep and primary wound that we carry, um, that we don't feel we belong um, and uh, you know, I'm very aware as well, uh, having um, lived many years in both here in America and in South Africa, which are colonized countries, that, um, that there's an even heightened sense of those that have um, the generations on from those that were the original colonizers, settlers, invaders, whichever way that we lens we look through, there's a, a deep sense of disconnect from being rooted in a, in a deeper story, in a deeper belonging, and how painful that is at some level, and a sort of the pain of the modern person not knowing roots, not to romanticize the village life. <laughs> there's a lot that's very can be very oppressive about being um, caught sometimes in a tribal situation and and not able to expand out of that but to recognize that there is there is a wound and the compensations that we make for the loss that loss that sense of the disconnect that we live with and this sort of fundamental ache of that in some way and that how you know some of the people that I've met or seen or been in the presence of, not that many really, but those that don't have that, that feel and seem to be totally comfortable in their skin, in their sense of belonging. People like Ajahn Chah came from a a very um, rural farming village, an utter sense of being rooted in, in this web of life from nature. Everything for him, the Dharma and nature were symbiotic nature was the dharma dharma is the nature Mr. Mandela we saw him sometimes a few times in South Africa had this tremendously kingly type presence completely comfortable in his being you know many many people that perhaps aren't so famous that hold that sense of being comfortable in one's skin, and then how how little I have felt that. <laughs> I remember one of the first times when I when I went to India when I was very young. I was taken there by actually a group of Americans who liked my. I was cooking on a retreat, and they sort of kidnapped me and took me with them because they liked my cooking. Mm-hmm. So um, I can always go back to being a cook if this <laughs> Dharma thing doesn't work out. <laughs> And they took me off to India with them. It was so thrilling for me because that was so out of my reach of whatever I thought was possible for where I came from. 
And I, I ended up spending quite a long time there, I think about seven months in the end. And after I spent many months in the meditation center where we went, I sort of started to wander around and kind of acclimatize myself to that culture. But what I noticed was that uh, even the chai wallers were more at home than me. You know, that they, they belonged, even the person on the street. And I was so aware of that disruption and lack of belonging and kind of ripped out feeling, partly because I think of the modernization and the nuclear family and having um, left when my father decided to try and better himself, left the extended family system that I grew up in in London, extended Irish family and then you know, going into a nuclear family, it really didn't work so well. And that sort of modern life, you know, the kind of the beginning of the supermarket and the cars and the telephones. <laughs> I mean, there was a time when I remember before the internet, <laughs> which dates me somewhat. <laughs> but you could, you know, feel the beginning of that abstraction. But that's, uh, that's come from a long, long time ago in the 1500s when Francis Bacon, the beginning of the emergence of Western science, when there was begun to be the split from the medieval alchemical way of understanding the world, where science and religion were much more knitted together still. And then this rise of the rational mind, where in the 1500s he said, nature, bound in service, hounded in her wanderings, put on a rack and tortured for her secrets. Here we see the the original mindset of that you know the domination of rather than being in communion with the beginning of dominating and nature dominating the animal kingdom, dominating um, these bodies uh, dominating the the sort of hierarchy of power that started the God at the peak, the God projected from man's ideal. The sort of judging harsh God, um, the God over over man and man over woman and woman over white over people of color and people over animals and everyone over nature. <laughs> and so this sort of these these structures these these are hundreds of years of uh, deep conditionings and systems that are carried in our narratives and in the shaping of how we experience ourselves. And at the heart of that, that rip, that pull, that removal from that, what was it, some deeply remembered sense, some time where we were part of it, we were all of it, we were in communion with it. And that might be um, something we could look to romantically and think, oh, we'd like, it would be nice to go back to that. But, you know, it, was, it also had its harshness and its violences, its oppressions. And this is a journey of evolution of consciousness. And so, you know, this sort of ripping out and this individuated journey over millennia where we've become to the apex of the individual human out of communion and um, in some ways suffering like mad (laughs) and very, very powerful very, very clever, this mind, this brilliant mind of ours that can 
you know, dissect the world right down to the atom and bend nature, bend the material realm, bend the atomic world to our use. And still at the heart of that we haven't resolved, as the Buddha pointed to, this force of greed, hatred and delusion as it operates within the human mind. So this enormous individuated power where we've reached the zenith and beginning to cannibalize ourselves, (laughs) destroy ourselves. Can't go any further actually. So this journey, somehow we have to make some kind of a journey, not back to what we were, we can't go back, but we have to remember what was and bring it into relationship to what is now and to remember that there is a way of being here um, where we can reconnect with what was lost, reconnect with a sense of belonging, with nature, um, of the sacred, of protecting from violation. And this, um, in the positive, in the way the positive rise of this, what um, the author Anne Byring, who wrote the book, um, The Dream of the Cosmos, Journey of the Soul. It's a very profound book. And she talks about the rise out of the the lunar consciousness when we were part of it all into the solar consciousness, where we individuate as the, the separate ego, as an evolutionary journey. And in that metaphor, we could see that the, the Buddha is like the, the solar, the positive side of the solar evolutionary process, the one that overcomes, not dominates the world out there, as we have done in the Western mindset, colonized the world out there and taken our wound around the world <laughs> and um, from our wound our consumption to try and assuage that deep pain I remember the first time I went to Ellis Island I not been that I think it was actually my one of my second not very long into coming into America not long after Kitty Sara and I were together we were in New York and we were taken um, to see the Statue of Liberty and then we went to Ellis Island and I was sort of just watching all the early footage of the um, late 1800s and the people coming in um, all of the immigrants escaping the pogroms escaping famine coming in on the boats and um, being tipped out not knowing the language being lost with a suitcase and um, getting the chalk marks on the back of their coat, if the cross, if they were not being accepted, were going to be sent back. And then going in the corner, turning the coat around, having another go. Um, you know, it was very poignant to see that and to see, you know, like how I think it was like nearly two thirds of Americans came through those portals, Angel Islands, Mary, um, the Chinese communities, Asian communities, and then the. Ellis Island, and to you know, to me, it really felt like the the wound of the loss was you didn't go back, you know, and how it it related for me this extraordinary consumption, an extraordinary sense of um, having to expand and you know dominate and expand, 
the the empire of what emerged from, in some ways, the brilliance and creativity of the American story, and yet this great wound at the heart of it, great sense of loss, great sense of pain, and of course built on, we know, this great genocide and the importation of the 10 to 12 million Africans, and it's a huge story, which is often in the ghostly recesses of our conscious awareness. And it's still playing out. These huge historical momentums of, 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 of what's happened that still kind of intersects with our experience here and now, in this body, in this moment, not necessarily the whole history, the whole detail of it, but the feeling tone, you know, the, the, the deeper levels of disconnect and despair and longing and seeking and strategizing and huge desire to have power and control, as we can see in the political metaphor that's going on at the moment. And going back really very early to these early um, ripping away in Europe, all of the the witch burnings over 300 years, which was the, the loss really of the indigenous knowledge. It's not only the women, but any healers, any ones holders of the old ways, of the loss of the shamanic traditions that were there, completely gone, almost eradicated. It was very effective, like apartheid in South Africa. These systems, once they get set in and once they play out, they create a lot of damage and very hard to recover from. Colonization, apartheid, so on. So all of this is, you know, these these are hard um, parts of our human inheritance. And when we talk about reclamation... It's hard to really reclaim what we've lost without understanding the journey we've been through and the losses that we've entailed, both personally and collectively. And yet to understand that in the heart of all of that, even in the midst of the greatest losses, there's still this enormous human spark of uh, spiritual potentiality, of uh, creative... um, and um, beautiful endeavor. So at that crux, at that this moment of our unfolding history, this journey of reclamation is a humble journey because in some ways it requires that we go back and look at how did we lose and what did we lose and where has it brought us to. And in the the journey of the Dharma, which can help and support us so much, it encourages us not to just think of awakening as a, a way to abdicate ourselves from any responsibility for that history and that journey, or to try and imagine figurines of light, but it actually gives us the capacity and the strength and the ability to withstand what is felt, to withstand the experience of dukkha. Because we're not an individual, we're the, we are, and we have individuated, and that's in a way a gift of evolution, and it's also a curse. <laughs> but we're also the, the result of a collective journey. And so when we start to practice, when we start to stop 
and just feel what we're with, we're going to feel not only our personal stories, but we're just going to feel these very archetypal uh, long stretches of history as they reach into this body, this moment, this feeling, this um, ill health, this depression, this uh, confusion, this feeling of lostness. Yes. And, and all of that, in some ways, we can take so personally, and it feels very personal, but in some ways it's not so much. It's a sort of, we're a product of the systems that we're born from, of causes and conditions. And that's a very wonderful freedom that the Dharma teaching gives us, is not to abdicate from what is experienced, there is a responsibility to be with what we are, but there is a f- the freedom to see it through less of a personal lens. When we were talking earlier from the discussion about the practice being less from me doing it and more from the practice just unfolding, the biggest burden, really, we talk about putting down burdens, is a, a story where Ajahn Chah was walking with his disciples and he pointed to these boulders and he said, are they heavy? And the disciples said, no, they're really, really heavy, they look heavy. And he said, well, they're not if you don't pick them up. <laughs> and so these boulders, that <laughs> so in some ways when we, when we meditate, we, we're feeling, and you felt today, all the boulders that we've picked up. And man, oh day, they're quite heavy, you know? All the things that we should, and we have to, and we didn't, and if only, and perhaps. But the, 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 the most subtle and the most burdensome boulder that we pick up is the sense of self, the sense of me doing this, suffering from all of this. <laughs> yeah. So in the practice, we're learning to find a, a, a different orientation. It's not to say that we dismiss that sense of self, we don't tend to that very carefully and the suffering that the self has but to know that's not the only dimension of our being. So the Ajahn Chah said, this Dharma practice, whatever time or place it unfolds within, arrives at letting go. It arrives at putting down the burden. So whatever the history, and it's you know deep and thick, and, and um, some of it's brilliant and amazing and beautiful and stupendous, obviously, but there's also a lot of it that's ripening karmically now that's very, very heavy. You know, and it's going to be here in our practice. You know, we're you know, just represented in the, the oceans dying, the plastic that we're, that's kind of clogging up everything, the forests around us, the, the, the earth burning. I mean, this is all the karmic result of this what's gone before. You know, the cannibalization of capitalism, cannibalizing its own at the moment. So all of this is is a heavy momentum, but there is always the possibility in every moment to hone the mind, not to ignore the suffering, but to the freedom at the heart of every single moment, every single situation. As the Buddha said, we mutti sarasabe dhamma. Freedom is the essence of every dhamma, of every situation.
spaciousness, conscious awareness is already free. And that we can recognize, we can know, and we can be and we can rest in. This is our deeper refuge. To understand that there is a refuge beyond the big story of the world. And it's most pressing, particularly at this time, when there is so much impact from what's gone before. and so much pain in that impact. And so much momentum from the greed, hatred and delusion that has yet not been transformed. And what the Buddha pointed to, this is the heart of the world, this mind and its projections. And it's really important to know that there is refuge that we take refuge. And as Buddha talked about, that's greater than all of the, owning all the kingdoms of the world, being the, the top of the pile. I mean, I have to say, the guys on top of the pile don't look that happy. <laughs> if you've noticed, they look pretty miserable. They're clinging on for dear life to the power that they feel that they have. And they do have, and they're wielding very badly. But they, they're miserable beings. <laughs> He said, a greater gift, the greater happiness is to, to have refuge, to know the refuge. And so this refuge is, is, it comes about through the willingness as we enter into the, the training of the Dharma, this practice of what's called nikamma, the letting go, the putting down the burden, the renunciation, the simplification. In the, in the heart of that word, it means to, to relinquish, to abandon that which is painful, the greed, hate, and delusion of the mind, to go forth from suffering, not to just to stay there, to tend to it mindfully, carefully, but to, to know that we can go forth from what is suffering and bring back to that suffering something different, something freeing, something illuminating, healing. This is what we can do, or the, what the practice can bring about for us. It's a question of just of doing it little by little, to moments of just releasing out of our strategies, to let things be, to be willing not to know, to have it all sewn up, to listen more deeply into the, the refuge, the Buddha. <coughs> For some, this, this is a, you know, the historical Buddha can be a, a person of, of inspiration, but for, for most it's probably um, rather uh, removed. Buddhas are rather removed <laughs> a long time ago. But more, as Kitisara was saying last night, more immediately, this refuge in the Buddhic knowing. Buddha literally means Buddha. He actually called himself the Tathagata, mostly. Tata, Tata, Gata. Tata, the one that dwells in suchness, in being, in presence. Gata, the coming and going, the coming and going. All things are coming and going, and yet there is this dwelling in the immovable, the suchness of being. We take refuge in Buddha, Buddhic knowing, this innate knowing of the heart. This is the quality, the innate quality of the citta or the heart. 
The heart gets shaped by many, many things, the impressions that we are attending to with our mindfulness practice, but its essential nature is tathagata, such, dwelling in suchness. And that isn't, you know, why that is the most simple dwelling for us. It's the most natural dwelling because it's the natural state of our being. It's the natural state of the mind. And yet, it's not something we can make an object of. You know, I can see that. I can become that. I can create my empire on that. It's completely the opposite, stripping away and releasing back into the simplicity of being aware, being present. That's the, the most radical way we can be. I remember one of the elder grandmothers of Khoisan, the southern Africa, Khoisan people, the so-called Bushmen, Bushwomen, uh, talking about, um, as well as their, their way of understanding their part and place in the cosmos, which they very much experienced. Um, you, know, you can see it in their writings that were what remain. Of course, they were also um, suffered profoundly from the colonization and genocide that befell so many different continents. Um, but uh, some remain, some still remaining in trying to live their lives in the way that they used to. It's not very easy, but can see that their experience of feeling themselves profoundly connected within uh, as uh, you know, shape-shifting as animals, as stars, as rivers, as mountains, uh, being in relationship in a very deep way to all of nature. On the back of the mountain where Dhammagiri, the hermitage that we founded in 2000 in South Africa in KwaZulu Natal, there's a painting for Drakensberg or Klumba Mountains where we live. It's thousands of paintings from the Khoisan. So they were pushed up into those mountain ranges. There's the Nguni tribes and came down from the north and the settlers, the invading colonizers came up in the south and the decimation of the First Nation peoples. They left a lot of their artwork, and at the um, back of the mountain, there, there's a painting of the, of where they are wrestling with a rain beast, the shaman wrestling with the rain beast <laughs> that lives in the Umvuleni mountain where Dhammagiri's nestled. Umvuleni, meaning place of rain, place of opening. And this, um, the they would. Uh, the shaman's job was to capture the rain beast and to control the weather patterns mm-hmm. through that relationship to bring the rains. And I have to say, the, the weather patterns around that mountain are very curious. And when we do the long retreats there and we do the Kuan Yin practices, there's definitely a rain beast in that mountain. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely Kuan Yin-like. Because whenever we go into the ceremony... We do the bow, and suddenly there's a huge crack of thunder, <laughs> huge lightning spe- um, peals, and it's quite. Um, a few years ago, we had a group for a POC group from New York Insight came to do a monthly 
retreat. And Maria was with us. And, and uh, they were absolutely amazed at how synchronicitous the practices and the ceremonies, the Kuan Yin practices we were doing with the responses from the, from the spirits of the mountains. And so it's said in the Kuan Yin practice, the response and the way are intertwined inconceivably. It's not a dead world. It's a speaking mysterious, magical, intelligent, um, mystical world that we're in relationship with. And, and of course, Khoisan knew that, lived that. And so this elder grandmother, um, you speak about what, is our, what are we doing here? Why are we here? Why, would we, why should we be here? What, what's our job here? And according to them, our job is to show up. That's it. Show up, show up not from your strategy, not from the thing you have to conquer, the thing you have to achieve, all of that happens, but to show up to Tagata, Tata, in presence, in suchness, in your being, for us to show up as well as we can, and then to um, celebrate, actually, (laughs) celebrate this life. Each breath is a celebration. So to take refuge in the buddhic knowing, to show up with that. And in that process, we're tapping the dharma. We're tapping the dharma as a living dharma. It's, it's in the books, it's in the, these talks, but these words and these books aren't the dharma. They're like, as Ajahn Chah would say, the peel of the fruit. They're not very tasty if you chew on them too much. But they're sort of necessary because they help the fruit to survive. So the, the fruit is a living thing. And the Dharma is a deep intelligence. It's the panya prajna knowing. The intuitive knowing of the heart. So that when we listen and we strip away from our knowing strategies, from the I doing it, from me controlling and dominating it all, which is the the primary metaphor that we're in, the primary structures of power that we're, we're in, and we sort of take the courage to soften out of that and listen deeply, then we start to hear the akaliko dharma, the timeless dharma, the sanditiko dharma, the here and now dharma, the opanayiko dharma, the dharma that's always inviting us inward, awakening us. It's inviting us. It's not that we have to go and grab it somewhere or deserve it. It's it's like nature is inviting us into relationship. Pachatang vetitabo vinyuhiti tamma, which means to be tasted by each person themselves. Ajahn Charles' favorite expression, pachatang, to taste it for yourself. And this uh, sangha, this refuge, is that we can't do this alone. You know, it's so much easier to meditate in a group. (laughs) You know, you can feel the power of that. um, You know, this is a collective endeavor. Yes, there's times alone and there's, you know, the practice of the great yogis spend time on their own and realize amazing awakening but for the most part, this is a collective undertaking. And not only here as a Sangha here, but all beings are part and parcel of our collective 
into being our web of life, our relational field, part of the sacred, are the sacred communion that we're in. And that has an impact, that has responsibility, that has implications. And Sangha is that which we essentially is about the ability to practice, not just to go along with the forces of greed, hatred and delusion, but to be able to transform them, to hone to the awakened heart, to draw on its inspiration and its insight, and to live that as fully as we can, as we reclaim not only our own bodies, hearts and minds and infuse them with the life-giving breath and the sacred energy of presence, but reclaim our world. Time is short, there is an urgency. And so may we use this time we have here well to establish ourselves in the refuge uh, for the welfare of ourselves and for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.